Philippians 3, verses 15 through the first verse of 4, uh, that is where we're going to be camping out this morning. So as we've gone through the book of Philippians, what, we, what you probably noticed in the video is uh, we've made special mention to the joy that can be found in Christ and the joy that the Apostle Paul had as he was writing this letter. So what stands in contrast to the joy that Paul is writing about is the situation that he is writing it under. Uh, we know that as Paul is writing the book of Philippians, he is under house arrest in Rome, and he's addressing the concerns that the Philippians had about his well-being, and he's also addressing their concerns about what is going to happen with the advancement of the gospel if Paul is in prison. They're saying, uh, here is Paul, who is probably just straight up the greatest missionary who ever lived, uh, who had church after church springing up. Uh, he's in prison. What do we do? How is this going to uh, result in the benefit uh, of the kingdom of God. And so what Paul does is he writes back to them and he's saying, uh, basically, you know, the spread of the gospel has not been slowed down. If anything, it is actually going deeper and further than it was uh, when I was out in prison because we see the gospel is uh, hitting into the uh, Roman Empire. Paul's got these guards next to him every day who are hearing the gospel. He's, uh, he's, he's hearing, if you go back to Philippians 1, all of these believers are seeing what Paul is doing, and they are preaching the gospel, some with good intentions, others with not so good intentions. Uh, and either way, Paul's happy because the gospel is being proclaimed. And so I think that one of the overwhelming messages throughout the book of Philippians is that even though the messenger of the gospel might be chained, the gospel itself is not. 2,000 years of the gates of hell storming against the church of Jesus Christ has not stopped the advancement of the gospel. And that is great news for us. And how do we know that this is the case? Um, did you know, and I, I looked this up not that long ago, that if you were to take a tour of the Roman Colosseum, it is, this is the place where uh, hundreds, thousands of Christians were killed for their faith. Did you know that if we, as the church, wanted to go visit, we could walk around the Colosseum for about 15 bucks? That's not bad. That's pretty good uh, for, for history. So here we are. We are standing firm as the church uh, because Christ has preserved uh, his kingdom. He's preserved the church. So the church here, while the Roman Empire, this great enemy of the first century of Christianity, is it's laying there as a tourist attraction. That is how we know that the church is going to stand because it's been able to stand throughout so much. By the start of the fourth century... It's estimated that anywhere between 25 and 50% of the Roman Empire had converted to Christianity. So the, the, there's so many Christians by the 4th century that uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine himself converts to Christianity, mainly because he's like, wow, there are a lot of Christians in this kingdom. I really don't want to get shanked in the hallway. I better do something to uh, please all these people that are coming into my kingdom. So I've often said that if the church cannot be stopped within the 1st century of its creation, I don't see it getting stopped in the 21st. Like, if it cannot get stopped with a bunch of fishermen in an upper room, it's not going to get stopped now. So, when it comes to Christianity, the Lord never gives us this false hope that everything in this life is going to be sunshine and rainbows. In a world that's hostile to the things of God, we shouldn't be surprised when the world is hostile towards us. The joy that we have as Christians lies not in the status and the success that we can experience in this world, but it is ultimately found in our future life in the next. And so uh, one day we know that we as Christians, we're going to be with the Lord forever. 
That's our security. That is our joy. And so uh, I might kind of date myself on Christian music, but one of my favorite Christian bands is a band called Reliant K. And they have one song out called Deathbed. And one of the best lines I've ever heard in a song, uh, the singer goes, so I've given up hope on the days I have left, but I'm going to cling to my hope of my life in the next. That's, 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 the, that's the message of Philippians right there. You know, Paul's saying, I'm in prison right now. I might live, I might die. I'm clinging on to something over here, something that's real, something that's, that's eternal, something that's going to last me forever. And so uh, that is what we're going to look at this morning, the joy and hope that we have as we look to the future that we have in Christ. So before we start reading, I'm going to just open us up in prayer. Father, I just pray that as we look at the future joy that we have in you, that we are encouraged, that we are that we are just built up and are affirmed that you are on the throne, that you are, are leading us and that you are ruling over all things. Lord, we love you, and I pray for open hearts and open minds as we dive in this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Paul, starting in verse 15, he writes, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul uh, begins this section by contrasting the people of God with the people of the world, or as he puts it, as the enemies of the cross of Christ. So here what we see, there's, there's really only two types of people that exist in the world. There are those that are for Christ, and there are those that stand against him. Paul calls the believers to imitate him, to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example that they have. Now, Paul knows that he is not a perfect human being. He knows that he is uh, saved by, by pure mercy, saved by pure grace, by Jesus Christ alone. And so uh, he knows that he has flaws. So for him to say, Hey, imitate me, do as I do. That's a pretty bold claim to make. And so uh, Romans 7, 18 through 24, kind of gives a little more, I would say almost a little more background information into what Paul is writing about here. So here's what he says in these verses. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Pretty big difference between what Paul says here in Philippians 3 and right here uh, of saying, uh, imitate me, do as I do. 
And so uh, the, the way that we can kind of make sense of this is that Paul sees that he's a sinner in Romans 7. So here's the connection. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That is Paul's answer. So to the, the question of Romans 7.24, of who could deliver him from the body of death, he gives the answer in 7.25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul's not saying that we're to look to him as the prime example to follow. Uh, Paul, even just last week in verse 12, he talked about, uh, you know, hey, look to the one that I serve. Look to the one who, who died, not just to save me, but to save all believers. Uh, he's the one that is perfect in all his ways. Look to him, imitate him, as I am seeking to have my own life reflect him. So I'm hoping that if you are a follower of Jesus, that, that you're not the same person that you were uh, when you first came to faith. Like, I hope that there's some sort of growth, some sort of shaping and molding into the image of Christ, that that leaving of, of baby steps of Christianity into maturity, right? I, I, hopefully that, that happens. Like, uh, I, I look, Laura and I, we're, we're celebrating our, our five-year anniversary uh, this Tuesday, which I'm surprised I've lasted this long, uh, or that she's lasted this long. <laughs> so, and I, I say this because I'm hoping that uh, who I was, uh, you know, five years ago is, is different than who I am today. And, and hopefully in a good way. Like, so in the same way that we hope that in our relationships, that there's like this maturing, that there's this, this building up, this greater love as the years go by, all the more we should expect that of our relationship with our Lord, right? Like we should say, like, and I'll say this, um, I've been, I guess, in full-time ministry about six, seven years, something like that. The, the, the pastor that I was six or seven years ago, I wouldn't want him preaching. I wouldn't want him here. <laughs> and I'm saying this because I'm hoping that I've matured in the faith, that I, that I have a better understanding of the gospel. And so I cannot imagine what it would be like if I was still the same Christian that I was when I was a teenager. There is a maturing that is expected of all that truly belong to Christ. There's got to be a reflection of our Savior within us, and that is what we refer to as our sanctification. And so Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote of, of sanctification, or a book on sanctification called Devoted to God, an amazing resource. And he wrote, sanctification then is God setting us apart for himself. Thus as saints, we have already been sanctified by him. Then he gradually transforms us so that we begin to reflect his attributes and attractiveness. Jesus Christ's life begins to be mirrored in our lives and our personalities. Christ makes us his own. And we live with our affections set towards the one that gave himself for us. So John Owen, he said that uh, sanctification is the universal renovation of our natures by the Holy Spirit into the image of God through Jesus Christ. So just as we renovate our houses, we, we renovate the front lawn to look more attractive, to be better. That is what we are to do as we grow up into maturity of our faith. So we could spend hours talking about sanctification, and maybe one day we will, um, but that is not entirely the main goal of what we're going with this morning. So uh, to get that, we have to get to Philippians 3, 18 through 19. So let's go ahead and let's read that again. Paul wrote, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. I'm sure that for, for many of you, and I would certainly hope so, that at this point in your life, uh, you'd be able to see that the world is hostile to the things of God, right? I'm, I'm, I, like, if, you, if you didn't know that up to this point, now you know. The world is hostile to 
the Lord. And so the world is not just anti-God. The world stands firmly opposed to God. They, the world doesn't just frown at the Lord. They are the enemies of God. Now, there was a moment. Uh, how many of you guys remember Larry King? I think he passed away uh, within the past year. Um, but Larry King, he had this talk show that went on probably 600 years, however old he was. Um, it went on for a while. And so he had his talk show. And then uh, one day, he, he had a man on his show who, uh, I, I won't necessarily say who it is, but you can probably put the clues together. Uh, he really enjoys the mentality of let's live our best lives now. Like, I, you probably know who it is at this point. And so uh, you know my opinion of him. And, and for some reason, people look, look to him, his wife, and a lot of other snake oil salespeople as these uh, poster children of Christianity. And so he's on the show, and he's talking about some things. Uh, and it, it's just kind of, eventually I'll get to it. Um, when you look at the state of the world, and, and the state of Christianity in a lot of contexts, it can, it can kind of feel discouraging. I went up uh, a couple hours north to get the printer for the nursery a couple of weeks ago, and so I, I always like to go through Barnes & Noble or uh, any kind of bookstore. And, and it, it just it broke my heart, some of the garbage that is being peddled out and represented as the Christian literature of today. Like, I was going through the bookshelf, and like, I, was, I was lucky to find a C.S. Lewis in there. Like, there are some things in there that I just didn't, didn't really enjoy at all. And so these are the things that are representing Christianity in bookstores, but that's besides the point. I could rant about that for a while. During this interview, King asks his guest whether or not he believed that people of other religions were going to hell. Now, for us who have been a little bit more mature in, in our faith, we hopefully know what the answer is. Um, but instead of standing out for gospel truth, this is what the esteemed guest said. And this is, this is word for word, by the way. I'll throw that out there. This isn't me, so we're not going to edit this down and be like, here's what Brady's teaching while Wayne's gone. Um, this is word for word. You know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I'm not sure, or I don't know. King said, if you believe you have to believe in Christ, right? They're wrong, aren't they? So here's where it kind of gets interesting. He says, the guest, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God, and I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. Tell me I'm not the only one that sees something wrong with that, right? Hopefully. I've spent a lot of time with people who believe differently than I do. They seem sincere. They seem to love God. No, they don't. They hate God. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus says in John 15, 23 through 24, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The world hates God, and if you love the Lord, the world is going to hate you. So don't get up at a pulpit. Don't get on live TV and just say, hey, you know, the world's trying. We're kind of walking on the edge there. You know, for the most part, they're pretty good. We're trying our best. That is not what is happening. Do not claim to represent Christ and say, hey, I know what works for me. Maybe something else is going to work for them. That is firmly opposed to the gospel. Because if, every, if, if someone could just come and take in little pieces out of each little religion or each little belief and say, uh, this is what's going to work for me, this is how I get eternity life, then the gospel's wrong. 
The world has their eyes on one thing and one thing only, and that is their father, the devil. They are sons of disobedience, as Paul tells them. Or Paul writes in Ephesians. Do you want to know something that is one of the most heartbreaking realities for a lot of people? For every single person that is not a follower of Christ, this world is the most heaven that they will ever experience. This world is the closest thing to heaven that some people are ever going to get. And, and all you got to do is take out your phone and pull up uh, Fox News, CNN, Twitter, whatever it is, and, and you tell me, this is the heaven that I want. Like, this looks like the closest thing that I'm going to get to uh, a good, fulfilling life. Like, if this world is heaven, I don't know if I want it. I don't think I want anybody to really want it because I see what's going on, and I don't really see anything that, that kind of even remotely looks like uh, a, a joyful eternity. If we look back at verse 19, uh, this is where our hearts should break for the lost. Paul writes that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. See, for the enemies of Christ, all of their ends are the same. It's destruction. Their lives ultimately lead only to destruction. Their God is their own self-interest and success. They glorify sin and shame. And their minds are set solely on the things that this world has to offer. If you are not a follower of Christ, then we plead with you to see the future that awaits you and realize that you are walking down a path for destruction. There's only condemnation, only destruction. The world that we live in today, here's the thing, it is not that much different than first century Christianity. We say, well, you know, we've got the internet now, we've got technology. No, bro, the, the, the sin's the same. We just kind of dress it a little bit differently, but the sin's still the same. Nothing has changed uh, from the first sin. I, I like to say that uh, all, all of these new sins that we claim to exist, they're just remixes of the original. The world that we live in is not so drastically different than the time of Paul's time because the human predicament is remaining the same. Man is existing to serve Satan. People aren't serving the Lord, they're serving their own egos. They're ultimately serving the devil. I think it's kind of odd that you have all of these, these people who claim to be so, so religious, to be so tapped into this, this spiritual realm that they can see all these other things. But have you noticed how some of these people, they never actually say anything that could actually benefit anyone else? Like, like take psychics, for example, I guess. I'm just throwing them under the bus. Um, they, why don't they tell us, like, hey, uh, COVID-19's coming or something like that? Why do they never do anything that's really all that helpful? And I think ultimately to some of these people, it's because of who they are serving, because the devil exists only to seek, kill, and destroy. They're not building up anything. We live in a world where false teachers dish out false hope, world pleasers dish out political correctness in the name of conformity and judgment, and people that vouch for inclusion say that you can be included as long as you keep your opinions about God to yourself and your mouth shut. That's the world that we live in. Take one look at the world and tell me, do you see people that are simply on the fence about the things of God, that are just kind of trying to do their best to be uh, godly or religious people, or do you see people that are ready to go to war against the kingdom of God? They're not ready, they already are. All that do not belong to Jesus hate God, and the only God that they serve is a false God that they make in their own image or in the image of Satan. So it's a good thing we're talking about joy today, right? Happy graduation Sunday. So as Paul highlights the enemies of Christ in the world that we find ourselves in, it can be easy to look around 
us and just feel kind of overwhelmed by the state of things. I'm sure that in the first century, as Paul was writing to his friends in Philippi, and they saw believers being imprisoned, beaten, and killed for their faith, it would have been easy for them to ask, how can I fight for joy here and now? Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I think uh, I've shared it before. I think that it kind of bothers, it bothers me when I hear believers look at the state of America today and, and their first thing they ask is, you know, what happened here? Where's, where's, where are our Christian morals that we used to have? I miss when, when America was, was the believer's country, when this was God's hope for the world. And, and the thing was is that this was never our country. If we're followers of Christ, this was never our country because our country is in heaven. America is not God's last hope for the church. Like, God is not looking at what is happening in this country today, and he's like, oh, I think they're going to blow it. I got a lot riding on this, this one right here. If, they, if, if this one goes down, they all go down. Like, that's not happening right now. If you are a follower of Christ, you are just passing through this world to your true home to where you truly belong. Peter says in his first uh, letter that we are the elect exiles of God. We are chosen by God and we're just passing through. We're aliens. We're like the Israelites on the way to the promised land. All that land in between, that's not their home. They're going somewhere better. One day we will get to our own promised land, God willing. Now, if our hope is in this world, in this country, politicians, anything outside of Christ, then we are placing our hope in the wrong place. I've said before that our national identity is in Christ and it's in heaven, not, not in this country or that country. And I've shared it before, probably back when we were in the sanctuary, that uh, if you are a follower of Christ, you have more in common with a fellow Christian that is Middle Eastern than you have with your unsaved neighbor that looks just like you. Because that is just how much your identity is found in Christ. So where or who is our identity in? If, if we are hoping for security as a follower of Christ, uh, like if all of our hope is in America and the things that this country might stand for, then I don't know if that's a very good hope, is it? I once heard, this was, this was back, I think, in the 1940s or 50s. I wasn't there personally, but I heard it on a video. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, he, once, he, he said that we sing songs like America the Beautiful, but what's so beautiful about it? And that guy got me thinking, what is, what is so beautiful about the country? Uh, where, what, what kind of hope do we have? I mean, we, we say, well, America has, has freedom. A lot of countries have freedom. Most of them probably do. Uh, you know, look at the landscape. We got, we got, uh, we got the, the, the Grand Canyon. Yeah, but, I mean, if you ever stand at the, the top of Mount Everest, perspectives change, right? We don't even have the good side of Niagara Falls. We got the, uh, we got the small version. It's like the uh, Las Vegas Eiffel Tower, I guess. You can say we got it, not the real one. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because, first off, because I, I don't want to get the, the, the bad emails. I am very grateful to live here. I'm happy to be a Christian in this country, but my heart also breaks for what I see, not just here, but all over the world, because I see people that are against Jesus Christ. What makes make America beautiful? Is it our addiction to, to pornography and sex? Is it our, our ever-growing hatred for each other? Is it, the, is it our love of seeing television and movie push the envelope more and more into what they're allowed to show on the screen? Is it our reliance on drugs and alcohol, our ease of 
of getting abortions and seeing approximately a million babies murdered every year in the name of women's rights? What makes America beautiful? Because if we're going to say it is the people, I think we have two different definitions of the word beautiful. It's like uh, the Princess Bride, right? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, once said that if God does not judge America, he will have to send a letter of apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I'm not saying this to, to bash the country and to get the angry emails later of, of Brady's a communist and hates the country. I'm not going there. Um, what I'm saying is, is that this is for us to realize as Christians, our joy ultimately does not come from this earth. It comes from the future hope that we will have as citizens of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that is one of the sweetest joys that we have as Christians. And so um, I don't have this in the slides. I actually just read this this morning. John Owen, he said this, that the elect of God shall infallibly be carried through all, even the most dreadful oppositions that are made against them, and be at length safely landed in glory. And there is no greater encouragement to grow and persist in our holiness than what is administered by this assurance of a blessed end and issue of it. I think that we're finally at the point for many of us where we're really starting to see just how different we are as Christians in comparison to the world. Maybe we're finally starting to see that our citizenship is in heaven and not here on this earth. There's this really great article by Alistair Begg, and I wish I could have just, just read the whole thing, um, but obviously that doesn't really work. Here's what he, he wrote. Perhaps it is only in the last few years in the United States that we have finally faced that what the Bible says is true. In this world, we really are sojourners and exiles. That reality has been clouded and obscured by the size and legal protection of the church in most of the Western world. But this world is not actually our home. We're not supposed to settle down here. We're not supposed to expect the church to be large, influential, and respected. Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different and not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort the next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. And that's okay. After all, that has been the reality for most of God's people through most of history. You see, what Paul writes of persecution, as it was being experienced in the first century, he's not talking about what, was, was, what, what we might see as persecution here in America. So what is persecution in the first century? Uh, renounce Christ or die. That's persecution. Like, like I'll, be, I'll be real with you. Like, like, this was the looming threat over the followers of Christ. Do you realize that at the time Paul is writing this, the Roman emperor is actually requiring his subjects to call him Lord. To say that Caesar is Lord is to say that he was God. But look at what Paul is writing. In the middle of the Roman Empire, next to guards who represent Caesar and report to him, Paul is writing, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. To attribute lordship to anyone besides Caesar is a death sentence in first century. So let me just say, right now, where we are at, we are not being persecuted. Right now, you are not being persecuted. And you might think that, that you are being persecuted right now here where you're at, but, but you're not going through what the first century believers are going through. We're not going through what believers in the Middle East are going through right now. And, and so maybe over like the past year or something, like, like here's the thing, you've been inconvenienced, but I don't think you've been persecuted. What, what, I, I find it very hard to believe. Like, do you think right now in Iran, Christians are looking over at, a, at America and they're like, oh, that, those poor people. They're making them wear masks. 
They're making them, you know, social distance. They're doing all this. Man, the church has it hard over there. My wife just got beheaded, but they got it bad over there. I feel bad for them. Think, think North Korea, they're, they're, like Christians over there, they're saying, oh, man, they're encouraging live streaming. They want us to meet out in the parking lot and, and hear the, the gospel that way. Meanwhile, my pastor just got beaten up and thrown in prison. Now, that's, that's happening all over the world. So imagine, imagine this. Imagine if you turned on the news when you got home and you saw the government pulling out uh, Tim Keller, John MacArthur, Louis Giglio, and Andy Stanley, pulling them out of their houses, throwing them in the street, and putting a bullet in their head. That's what Christians are afraid of in the first century. That's what Christians are dealing with all over the world. Why are we surprised then that the world seems to be growing more hostile to Christianity? The thing is, the world's always been hostile to Christianity. It just seems a little more in our face right now. So where is our joy? It's in the knowledge that one day Christ will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And it's in the knowledge that the very Christ that does that is the same Christ that subjects all things to himself. Our present joy comes from the same place that our future joy is in, and that is in the Lord. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. That is our challenge. That is what we have to do. We stand firm. The day is coming where we're going to be travelers no more, and we will be home. All we have to do is keep walking towards that end goal. So I made the statement earlier that for non-believers, their time on this earth is the most heaven that they will ever experience. But there's another side to the coin. Right now, if you are a follower of Christ, this earth is the most hell that you will ever have to go through. We know this because Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whatever, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live to him. No matter what happens in this life, the next life, or in this country or any other country, God knows that those that belong to him, and he is not against them. This is the great promise of Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not a drop. None. 100% God is totally for us. To be a follower of Christ now means that even when we lose our job, when we lose our family, when we lose uh, comfort and wealth, when our spouse goes flying out the window of the car, when we get into an accident, when we lose all of these things, that we can boldly stand and say, I will trust in the Lord for he is good. He is enough for me. God is our firm foundation for our ultimate joy in the future. So graduates, even as you leave to go to the next chapter of life, I hope that you're able to say to everyone that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you don't care if that's okay to say or not. Because you know that's true, because that's where your joy is coming from. Our king is coming soon, and we know that that is all we need in order for our hearts to be filled with joy. God's not looking down at us and saying, I'm starting to lose hope that this is all going to work out in the end, because he knows what's going to happen. He knows, when, like, like, here's the thing. We look at Revelation as this really long book, and it is. God knows the end. He knows he's going to win. I think Armageddon, we kind of build it up in our minds of this being this really, really long, stretched out, bloody battle. Now, Jesus is going to come out and just be like, nope, it's done. God's got this. That is where our joy comes from. So let's go back to Alistair Begg, just one, uh, one real quick moment. He writes, when the Lord builds his church, either in number or in maturity, through our labors, gifts, and giving, we are being used to build the only kingdom that will last forever. There is nothing coming next. 
So give your best to this kingdom. It may feel small, but it is never in vain, for this kingdom is eternal and it is God's. So we do not panic and we do not vent, and we enjoy a deep confidence even as the tides seem to run against our faith. God is God, he is in control, and his kingdom, his church, ultimately knows no rivals. We as the church can stand firm in the Lord, and we can look ahead with joy unspeakable of the day when he's going to return, and we will be with him forever. If, if you have not placed that faith in Christ, if you do not have that, that sweet sense of joy that comes through a relationship with him, today is the day to do it. Today is the day to have joy unspeakable as we cling to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to respond uh, together. Let's pray. Father, we know that this world is hostile to you, but we are not going to lose heart. We're not going to lose hope. We know that you are king of kings, that this kingdom is yours. And when that is the case, what do we have to fear? Safety might go, security might go, money might go. We are citizens of heaven. Lord, we look forward to that day when we can be with you forever. When we pray, Lord, come soon and may all that stand against you see you in glory and repent of their ways and turn to you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.